You may be seated. Thanks again. Uh, my name is Adam. I'm the youth pastor, and I could not be more proud of our young people this morning. I am uh, grateful uh, for the investment of our adult leaders who spend a significant amount of time every week in order to establish relationships and pour into the hearts and lives of these young people. So I am very grateful for them. I am also grateful for the parents. Um, your kids are wonderful, uh, the ones that are up here and the ones that are out there. I appreciate them so much. Um, but this morning, uh, we have uh, leading us uh, with this message is Devon Lee. Uh, I have challenged Devon to do this. It's been uh, something on his heart to do. Um, so this morning, we ask that you give him your attention and uh, that you pray for him as he uh, speaks the word of God to us. And as uh, you hear, I pray the Holy Spirit will open your heart. Thank you again for being with us this morning. After you, sir. Thank you. Proud of you, man. Thank you. Good morning. My name is Devon Lalee. I am a student in the Generation 180 Youth Group. Today we will be reading in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8. I just want to say thank you for joining us this morning. Um, I hope everyone's having a great morning. And I want to say congratulations to you guys. Um, I'll be there next year. I uh, can't wait. Um, thank you. <clears throat> Let us stand in, God, in honor of God's word. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Let us pray. Dear God, thank you that you make all things new. Thank you for the victory and power in your name. Thank you that you hold the keys over death, that by your might Jesus was raised from the grave, paving the way for us to have new life in you. Thank you that you made a plan and a way. Amen. So, this morning, we are going to answer three questions about Jesus' death and resurrection. Those questions are, what is the evidence? What does it mean? And lastly, how do I apply this to my life? Firstly, what is the evidence? What does the passage say? Paul's presenting an argument to the Corinthian church, an argument that stands or falls on five pieces of evidence. So what is Paul defending? What's his argument? Simply, Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God. While doing so, Paul also provides a piece of substantial evidence that the Bible is a reliable historical document, that it is based on events that actually happened, and Paul says, I can prove it. So firstly, what Paul is claiming is something that he received, not something he came up with. It is firstly important because as Paul will give evidence, the resurrection is central to faith in Christ and hope. Why it isn't firstly important, we will get to in a minute. The implications of Paul's message are profound, though he has the testimony in himself to prove these claims. The burden of proof goes beyond just Paul. Much more and many others are involved. The second fact Paul's teaching in verse 3 is that Christ died for our sins according to Scripture. A few very specific words are chosen here, 
and they have been carefully kept. Christ died. This is a fact according to Paul that there was life and that life came to an end as any and all others do. Next, Paul uses the word for. This death had a cause. What was the cause and what was it for? The cause of death, he says, was for our sins. Finally, right here, Paul says that there was a plan. The entire process was according to something founded on something. The third fact Paul says is he was buried. What happens when someone's buried? Oh, wow, my bad. What happens when someone dies? Wow. Ooh. They're buried, right? <laughs> Excuse me. But what happens before that? For us, there's the funeral home that is notified, there's a visitation, and then the burial. Then, like now, certain things happen before you're buried. Times haven't changed so much. The death event still follows a prearranged schedule. People being buried because they die is important. That's why Christ being buried is a part of Paul's argument. Dead people get buried. Then Paul says he was raised in accordance with Scripture. Now, stop for just a second. I want you to really grab hold of this implication. Realize the claim. Realize the accusation Paul's making. There was a, na- a man named Jesus who lived, who died, all the standard things. But then Paul drops the bombshell and makes the greatest claim in the history of time, the very hinge upon which all Christianity swings, the claim every believer then and since has believed and been called to. Paul says this man was different. Paul, well, because this man was raised from the dead, not just raised to live again in the old body he died in, but raised to inhabit a new body, a spiritual body. As he goes on to say in verses 35 through 49, oh, I screwed up. Um, and so we arrive at our fifth point made in Paul's argument. Paul has said that Jesus lived and paid the ransom for many. He died, was buried, was raised in a new spiritual body. Then what does he say next? At the, verse of, at the end of verse 5, Paul says he appeared. What is the appearance, and why is the, impor- uh, the appearance important? Because it's what the 40-day ministry was all about. <clears throat> the 40-day ministry of Christ was the evidence that demanded then and demands now a verdict. Paul says, I'm not just claiming this thing out of nowhere. Many witnesses can say the same thing because Jesus appeared to them. But who was them? Who did Jesus appear to? First to Peter, but why? Peter has messed up and he denied Jesus three different times, but Peter would be the rock on which the church would be built. And after Jesus' death, Paul says that Peter was visited by Jesus. Next, Jesus appeared to the twelve, those closest to Jesus who heard all the claims and at certain points struggled to believe and understand. Third, he to the five hundred, some of whom have died, but others who are still alive. Fourthly, to James, the half-brother of Jesus, and fifth, to the apostles. Now this word apostle means messengers. These are different people from the twelve. This meant all the followers. The book of Acts, chapter 1, verses 15, states, There were about 120 believers gathered on the day of Pentecost. The twelve and the apostles are all messengers, as that name design, designation implies. To be a messenger, to be given the title apostle, the Bible says in Acts 1 that you must have been there from the beginning and must have seen the risen, glorified Christ. 
Then lastly to Paul, abnormally born on the Damascus Road. This is so significant it can't be overstated. This is what the 40-day ministry of Christ was all about. Leaving the evidence by witness, leaving evidence that demands a verdict, and not just to two or three or ten people, but to 500 plus people. If you ever want to win an argument where you are stating that something happened and that something was extraordinary, have 500 people with you. We began asking, we began asking three questions. The first was, what does this passage say? Now we come to the second. What does this evidence mean? This passage, as it is constructed, has a certain rhythm and flow to it, kind of like our Pledge of Allegiance. It has a certain rhythm and rhyme. So what does that mean? It means the Bible is a reliable historical document that wasn't constructed by a select few. It wasn't made up, but it was passed down from eyewitnesses of the actual events. Paul says, fact, I received, not come up with on my own. I received and 500 others can verify my claim. Isn't that crazy? The fact that you know that the information that all our hope is based on comes from not one or two, but 500 other people. And, that, and it was carefully kept, though the centuries as it was transferred from one to another. You see, those who become the pillars of the church were not simply appointed. They were witnesses. They had certain qualifications and great care was taken to affirm that fact. By Paul then and by many others since. Lastly, our third question. How do I apply the literal God-given instruction to my life? What does this information that demands a verdict mean to me? Well, let's consider four questions that you might ask if Paul, were present, well, if Paul was presenting this argument to you. Let's start off with this. Number one. You might ask, Paul, you said Jesus died. How exactly did Jesus die? Can you prove it? Can you prove it without the Bible? The answer is the death of Jesus by crucifixion is recorded in all four Gospels of the Bible. And yes, it is also attended, attested to, any, many, in, to, to and many sources outside the Bible, such as the writings of a, name, a guy named Josephus. This guy lived at the same time all this was happening. He was a Jewish historian, and we can verify by his writings many of Paul's claims. Then there's another guy named Tacitus. He was a Roman historian who also recorded in his writings the death of Jesus by crucifixion. There is the Greek satirist Lucian and the Stoic philosopher Mara. They both mention the death of Jesus in their writings. The second question, Paul, why talk about the burial of Christ if Christ was raised? Paul might say that firstly, I spoke about the burial because it's important. I received, and second, you can go look up these, those who did the burying. These evidence is, this, this evidence is information that could be tracked to those sources. <clears throat> Prominent figures, people with big names and identities are who arranged and handled the burial, right? You would know these guys or would have heard of these guys if you were from the same area as Jerusalem or as if you visit, visited seeking this information. <clears throat> this wasn't Bob from down the street. These two men were prominent and known in the community. One a businessman and the other 
the teacher of the Jewish religion. If you lived in Atlanta, this would, this would mean that the people that buried Jesus were equivalent to Tourette Cathy, the founder of Chick-fil-A, and Charles Stanley, the senior pastor of the First Baptist Church in Atlanta, Georgia. <clears throat> These people were prominent and known. They could be found, and Paul knew it. The third question, Peter was broke. We got it. But why appear to James? Who better to attest to the entirety of the life of Christ than the one who grew up with him? Who also could answer the question, did Jesus sin? Did he ever lie or hurt anyone? James didn't believe in, just, in Jesus until he saw him at, as the risen Savior. <clears throat> this, is a, this is huge as far as evidence is concerned. James didn't believe before the resurrection. James, the skeptical half-brother of Jesus, was suddenly changed. His conversation was post-resurrection. You see, if you look to the gospel of Mark chapter 3, verses 21, and John chapter 7, verses 5, you'll see this is well-established information. James was not a believer before the death of Christ. Then something happened. There was a radical transformation. Look at the actions of James and Peter in the gospels, in the gospels and Acts. Peter went from a coward in the courtyard to the ardent martyr and founder, and founder of the Christian church. James went from an unbelieving brother to a writer and pillar of the Jerusalem church. The change these men experienced finds real difficulty in explanation. If not for their belief in the resurrection, they looked upon, touched, and spoke with the resurrected Jesus. Number four, so why Paul? Why is your conversation so, why is your conversion so important? Because Paul was the church persecutor, and then he wasn't. He was suddenly changed. It wasn't slowly brought along and persuaded. His conversation, his conversion was instant. He went from persecuting and seeking the death of Christians one day to joining their cause the next why is this, why is this con conversion important enough to be contained in such a creed? Well, it was the change. What caused him to change? If you read Acts 9, 3 through 6, he saw the risen Jesus on that road outside Damascus. <clears throat> this was not just something that slightly altered his life. It dramatically changed his life. <clears throat> First Corinthians 9, 1 Corinthians 9.1 says, I, as in Paul, left my position as a respected Jewish leader and became a Christian missionary. I entered a life of poverty, labor, and suffering. I was whipped, beaten, stoned, and left for dead, shipwrecked three times in constant danger, Depri wow. deprived and anxiety, finally, I made the ultimate sacrifice, and was martyred for my faith at Rome, all because one day on the Damascus Road, I met Jesus, our Lord. After all that, where are we? The evidence demands a verdict. Paul is saying that this actually happened, that this is fact according to many. And as we sit in the here and now, 
we know that there's a bigger ripple. The stone cast in the first century has had time to spread, and it, was, and it has gone away for, way further than the Corinthians could have ever known. So again, for us, this means the evidence demands your verdict. You believe and accept Paul's evidence, where then you have a decision to make. If that happened, and Jesus is the Lord, but in order not to believe, you must explain away all the evidence that Paul just presented and back it up with facts, just like Paul. You must explain how, without the resurrection and subsequent appearances of Christ. You must explain how 500 people are, are stated to have seen the resurrected Lord and not a single line of information exists that contradicts this statement in all of ancient antiquities. Second, explain the changes in Peter, James, and Paul, a coward, a non-believer, and a persecutor. Lastly, and, and I'll close with this, explain the empty tomb. Without the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus was ex- executed publicly in Jerusalem by professionals. It would be very difficult for one to attest to the appearances and subsequent church gen- genesis in Jerusalem with a tomb that was still occupied. The Jewish authority was the enemy of the early church, and its station was Jerusalem. The birth of the Christian church is a place that should have, been, that should have had the ability to counsel, conceal, and prevent any effort at forming a religion based on the events of Jesus, Jesus' life must be, in, must be explained. <clears throat> Those who had an experience with the resurrected Jesus were willing to die for what they believed. No one would knowingly and willingly die for something they didn't believe in. There, there exists no other reason why skepticals like James and Paul would have been converted and eventually martyred. The evidence for the actuality of the resurrection is overwhelming, for it is the best explanation for the evidence that demands a verdict. Even if someone wanted to stand and not believe after you've concluded with the facts about, above, they would still have to offer alternative explanations, explanations with evidence to back it up. Contesting these isn't enough to prove them false. To contest, you must fill the gap left in history by the evidence of Christianity. Or fill the hole that the coming into the history of the Christian church has created, a phenomenon undeniably attested by the New Testament, an event that rips a great hole in history, a hole the size and shape of resurrection. The evidence demands a verdict. What's yours? Church family, it can be easy for us to discount the words of a high school student if you're not careful. 
the challenge that you would have to discount the words of, of a high school student today would be the fact that Devon hasn't grounded his statements in his own um, intelligence or his own ability or in his own life. I appreciate the fact that Devon stepped up and stood behind God's word and sought to do what Paul has done, to ground the truths of his claims in the facts of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, ultimately, the question is not, do you believe what a teenager has to say? I can tell you uh, as, uh, as your pastor and as a man who studied this for my whole life that everything that he has said is 110% true and very well done. The question is not, do you believe a teenager? The question is whether or not you believe the Word of God. The question really is whether or not you're willing to take the Word of God um, at face value regardless of who it is that delivers it to you. The truth of the matter is that there's probably no better way for an adult to hear the gospel presented than from the lips of a teenager because the gospel requires that we would humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God and submit under the gospel of Jesus Christ and to be saved. It can sort of be a slap in the face for some folks to hear a message preached with such passion and such work from a teenager, but I can assure you of this. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not bound in suits and ties, and it's certainly not held only by those who have got enough gray hair to know a few more things in life. The gospel of Jesus Christ is true regardless of who preaches it, because it is not the message of a preacher or a pastor. It is the very word of God passed down to us from generation to generation. So this morning, as the evidence has been presented to you, the question is, where are you? What is the hole in your life that needs to be filled? What, 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 what argument do you have against the evidence? It's, it's possible that this morning you showed up for Youth Sunday and said, well, I'm going to go and suffer through whatever these teenagers are going to do, and instead the Lord has blessed you. It's possible that you could be here today going, I can't believe it, but the words of a 17-year-old kid have cut me to the quick. And today, right now, you're wrestling with whether or not you're willing, you're willing to humble yourself under... The pressure of God's Holy Spirit in your life and to respond to the Word of God as proclaimed to you by a young man. Let me just give you this. This Word is true. And it is not dependent upon any man or woman. It is true because it is the very Word of God. And this morning I want to deliver to you as of first importance what the Apostle Paul taught us. That Christ Jesus died for our sins. For your sins and for mine that was buried, as Devon has mentioned this morning, and on the third day rose again, overcoming death, hell, sin, and the grave, and securing for all who would call upon his name salvation forevermore. So this morning, I want to invite you, as we stand and as we sing, I want to invite you this morning to respond, not to the sermon of an 11th grader, but to respond to the Word of God and respond in obedience to the Spirit of God. Stand with us this morning as we sing. Let me pray for us. Father God, I am grateful that the Word of God is true, always, now, and forever. Father God, I pray you would work through your Word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.